Yes, hello, ladies and gentlemen, Titus O'Reilly here, and we have some exciting news for 2024. Mick and I are going to be performing two live sports bazaars at the Corner Hotel in Richmond, 20th and 27th of February. Uh, We're really looking forward to this. It's right near Mick's house, so we're guaranteed to be able to do it. We'd love you to come along. Tickets are available through Oztix. You can either go to Oztix and search Sports Bazaar or put the link in the show notes. And for those of you in other states, we are looking at doing that too. So don't feel left out. We're just starting here because, well, it's almost next door to Mick's house. So why wouldn't you? Sports Bazaar podcast live, the Corner Hotel, the 20th and the 27th of February. Hope to see you there. It's Sports Bazaar. This is where the trouble starts. It's like a party switch has flicked off. We're not here for a haircut. The hunt for the weirdest. You're blowing my mind. I can't keep it. You fact check this. There is no logic to any of what's going to happen. Strangest. Wow. This is outrageous. It's not for the ages. Things are just going to get sillier and sillier. No red flags there. Most unbelievable. Volatile. Erratic. Simple. And clinically insane. Stories to ever occur. There's a lot of our stories that start with someone laying money lenders. This is not the perfect preparation. In the world of sport. This is the opposite of perfect preparation. <laughs> this is the worst. Sports Bazaar. Yeah, were you saying horse whipped as in he was actually horse whipped? Yeah, uh, he said there's only one thing for it. I ordered hair of the dog. <laughs> of rabble of vagrants, drunkards, ruffian brawlers and gambling desperado. So like the Sports Bazaar audience. <laughs> this is the Sports Bazaar Summer Edition. Do I miss that meeting? You miss a lot of meetings. <laughs> With Titus O'Reilly. Yes, welcome ladies and gentlemen to Sports Bazaar. Uh, I'm Titus O'Reilly again, and it's a big deal for me today because we're interviewing Brian Curtis. He's the editor-at-large of The Ringer. Importantly, in sports writing, he's not generated by AI, which is rare these days. He's got a podcast, The Press Box, with David Shoemaker, which is uh, absolutely fantastic, especially if you love to jump around from politics to sports media to wrestling references, which is weirdly exactly what I want to listen to. He's just written a great story on The Ringer, not so fast, the oral history of ESPN's college game day, which we might talk about briefly because that was a power of work. And it's a great article, even if you're not familiar with ESPN's college game day, of how something very successful in a creative sense has a very odd path to becoming successful. Brian, welcome to the show. I just want to also say you writing for Grantland and the whole crew you had there back in the day, I was working a corporate job and was reading your stuff and thinking, this sounds way more fun than working a corporate job. So I started a blog. Not long after that, I managed to quit the day job and uh, write books and do live shows and all that sort of stuff and things like this, all, all because of your writing, which is strange for someone on the literally the other side of the world. Well, thank you so much for saying that. That's what we'll chalk that up as a win for Grantland. Yeah. Uh, if slightly after the fact, <laughs> in terms of our life cycle, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, now, Brian, we wanted to talk today about football in Texas mm. because you grew up in Texas and were in college in Texas. So you know this in your bones, this subject. I do. And, you know, even now as a kind of former Texan, having spent my first 22 years there, I'm hooked into message boards and, and local sports radio and other unhealthy things so that I will never uh, be fully severed from Texas football. <laughs> I think the thing that's, you know, we've got a lot of listeners across Australia, obviously, but also, you know, England and New Zealand and places not in America. We have this sort of 
you know, understanding of Texas football is formed by things like Friday Night Lights, the book I remember reading originally and then the TV show and, you know, the Dallas Cowboys are a brand that's, you know, like the Yankees, they're, you know, even if you've never watched a single minute of American football, you know who the Dallas Cowboys are. On the ground, is football as big in Texas as it is purported to be through sort of the media over here and around the world? The very short answer is yes. And I think if there's any difference from the way it's transmitted on the screen and in other ways is that, you know, Friday Night Lights, when you look at the the movie uh, and the television show, there's you, you get the idea that there's something very mystical about Texas yeah. football, especially Texas high school football, that you're going to step on this field and feel this almost strange energy, you know, emanating off it that's different from California where I am now or, or Ohio. But, you know, I think what's so remarkable about Texas football, and I hope we'll get into here, is it's just such an ingrained part of life in that state. You know, whenever I take my wife back there, she's just always amazed at how much the schedule of life revolves around football. Yeah. High school's on Friday nights, college is on Saturdays, the pro game, the Cowboys especially, on Sunday. And all the rest of life fits in around football because football is just such an ordinary thing, like going to McDonald's. I mean, I live in Melbourne, and Australian Rules, you know, was sort of from here originally, and it's like that here. It's a religious festival type thing with football, you know, in that here in Australia, in Melbourne, if you don't have a team, you're thought of as odd. Now, how much you actually barrack for that? Like, you, you could say, I never go to the games, but I'm a Collingwood supporter, and people go, oh, okay, you're a Collingwood supporter. They just like to know that you're at least got part of the faith. <laughs> they don't care how hard you practice it. Yes. But if you said, I go to the football every single week, but I don't have a team, people would go, that's odd. What's wrong I with you? I don't understand. Yeah, what is wrong with you? You know, when my family and I visited Melbourne and, you know, hearing people tell me they were, you know, for St. Kilda or Geelong, yeah. please correct me if I'm getting any of these no, no, they're names right. wrong here. It really reminded me of Texas football because – it's not a team you root for. It is a lifestyle brand. It is the way you think about the world. It is the clothes you wear. It is your social media avatar. It is a huge part of your identity. Yeah. You know, I'm a Melbourne Demon supporter in, in football. And our stereotype is we're rich and we enjoy going to the snow, which as far as stereotypes goes, is not that bad. No. You know, that's not like people sort of say, oh, are you off to the snow? And you go, um, okay, yeah, you know, that's what they'll say. But Collingwood have, uh, you're uneducated, you're a thief and you have no teeth. So there's, <laughs> there's definitely like a roll of the dice <laughs> of where you end up. But I find those stereotypes are never totally wrong. There's always some truth. Yeah. Or even if it's old truth, you know, there's some truth. Sure. You occasionally meet someone, I mean, uh, being a Melbourne supporter, the, people say you're rich. And then one day I said, to, I bumped into someone I'd never met before and she said, I'm a Melbourne supporter. And I said, oh, great. And I said, did you go to the game on, uh, on the weekend? She said, I couldn't. I was going, but I couldn't. I said, what happened? She said, the farrier was late to clip my horse's hooves. Oh, that is incredible. And you go, okay. There's... <laughs> so in Texas, is it the same? You know, like it's instantly say I'm a something supporter and it's like people will instantly put you in some sort of box. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the one that I am um, branded with and that is correct, at least in the in the broad strokes, is the University of Texas Longhorns. Yeah. And among the colleges there, you know, we were known as a fan base that was 
you know, not as rabid as the other fan bases that would get to the games a little bit late. The cheering would be slightly muted. It was if we had bigger things on our mind than Saturday afternoon football games, plus just just kind of an elitist sneer toward the other state universities of Texas. And again, in the broad strokes, fact check true. You know, that is the case. Mm. That's right. It's, it's very hard to argue with a lot of that. Just to give context to people, so there's like something like 1,500 high school teams there, they reckon. Some of them have stadiums that, if this is high school, that would you know, be a bit better than most stadiums around the world. So sort of, you know, tens of millions of dollars spent on these stadiums. They're amazing. TV rights, TV radio deals, all these. That's the thing that's a bit different to here and and I think England and other places. Why is in Texas even high school football, is it the small town nature? You know, you got these cities and that's the main thing that happens there or why have these become the focus in Texas of whole communities? So... What you're referring to there is a really interesting suburban phenomenon. Right. So you and I could parachute into a tiny town in a remote corner of Texas, and it would have a few bleachers and, you know, a few dozen fans in a way we would recognize a small town sport. Right. But what happens is around Dallas or Houston, you've got all these very rich suburbs, and they often have one high school. And of course, the people there want their high school to be really good at football. Right. So money pours in, a big stadium is built. And I'll tell you, Titus, one of the funniest parts of this phenomenon, you probably know this, is these little suburbs will have one high school. And it'll grow and grow because these are, you know, moneyed places. People want to move to this particular suburb. And then they'll say, well, you know, we really do need two high schools because now we've got... 3,000 kids going to a high school. That's an extraordinary <laughs> yeah. number. I had a big high school. It was like 1,500 people. 3,000, 4,000. But they don't want to split it up because then their football power will be diluted because <laughs> half will go to one high school and half will go to the other. Right. So they start just sticking everybody in the same school and they almost have to have this like Harry Potter-like system you know, where you put people in little you know, individual houses within a high, which is hilarious in a Texas public school. Yeah. Uh, but they do that because they don't want to be bad at football. <laughs> so it's more a, a football team with a school attached rather than a school with a football team attached. That's certainly what it feels like. <laughs> it's one of the great ones. <laughs> so there's, you know, Friday Night Lights, the series was huge over here. That's a very, like you say, a romanticized, mystical view of what it's like. It's a bit like the field of dreams for Texas high school football. It has a little bit of that feel, doesn't it? Yeah. But I think what it gets right is the way those Friday nights and the light, by the way, the quality of light at football games in the night does seem very striking. You know, it feels very raw and kind of, you know, very powerful as you're sitting out there in the stadium. It captures a way that that is the central social event of your high school life in Texas. So if you're not into football, is it a strange, like, are these the kids that get out of Texas? You know, is it that full on? No, it just doesn't matter because you're going as a social event. Right. So you're going anyway. Yeah. My buddy and I, who needless to say, uh, were not selected for the football team. We would go as freshmen and we'd go sit on the very top row of this immense high school stadium. There was nobody in like the 30 rows beneath us. But we just go sit there every Friday night and talk to each other and watch the game because there's absolutely no other place we wanted to be. Yeah, All our friends were there. Everybody we knew was everybody we wanted to know was at the game. And you just went. That's what you did. There wasn't really a choice in that. Right. 
when we get to college football, Texas has got an amazing array of teams. I think it's 13 Division One college teams I was reading up and nine in the football championship subdivision, so the FCS, FCS. I thought we might just run through a few of them and you give us a bit of a flavour yes. of the different ones. College football's, I think, the last great holdout, although it's a holdout that's about to go under of so-called amateurism in sport. Yes. You know, you know, rugby union sort of 1995 was one of the last holdouts that then went professional. You know, you sort of had the Olympics, I think it was 91, I think they made the choice to get rid of the amateurism. But the NCAA and college football is the last great bastion of it, although a bastion under increasingly <laughs> that's changing. You wrote this thing about game day. You did this huge oral history of it because game day is sort of part of that big just shows you how big this is in an industry, college football. I mean, for those outside of America, I don't think they get college football is, is bigger in terms of revenue. I know there's a lot more teams, but sort of baseball and some of these other top-line sports, isn't it? It's the media deal. I think SEC is like $6 billion TV rights deal or something. It's unbelievable. And, that's, and that gets to what you're talking about with the whole idea of amateurism or at least the facade of amateurism. Yeah. Because especially back when I was in the University of Texas in the late 90s, all the members of the football team, and, and again, from my visits to Australia, I understand that college sports doesn't exist in, in the same way. Nah. But all the members of the team had to be full-time students at the University of Texas. Yeah. They all had to be taking a full course load. They were, at least in that very slim sense, my classmates. You know, they, were, they were going to classes with me. Yeah. And yet, they were playing in these games that were getting hundreds of millions of dollars for television rights. And, you know, we're making boodles of money off of ticket sales every week and luxury boxes at the Texas Stadium, but they couldn't make any money. The idea was you're a student, you're full time here, you're playing, you know, this is amateurism. Yeah. Uh, you'll make your money later in the NFL. It was very, very funny. The whole idea of amateurism was like, because I'm doing a show next year about, you know, history of sport. The Greeks had no concept of amateurism, there were prizes and money. It, it was a totally invented thing from British public schools that just got invented and became this huge thing. So you've got these huge teams, these huge amounts of money coming in. Let's look at Texas A&M, the Aggies. You know, the A&M stands for agricultural mechanical, but that's a very old overhang from a long time ago. Yes. They're a big rival with your beloved Texas Longhorns. Yes. How would a Texas Longhorns fan see the Aggies? Uh, they would see them as a not a military school, but a school that wants to have the trappings of a military school. Right. Lots of cadets in full uniform. No female cheerleaders, but male yell leaders. Yeah. Instead, they would see them as a school that was sort of, in, at least, you know, among a lot of students, rejecting big city cosmopolitan Austin, where the University of Texas is for... Yeah. Something a little more out of the way, a little more "quote unquote" real Texas. I think those are some of the <laughs> those are some of the things you'd hear about A and M. They're the stereotype. Gives you a sense of how big it is. That when they were deciding to leave the Big Twelve Conference and all the realignments are uh, constantly happening, these teams leaving and joining different conferences. Baylor actually filed a suit in a federal court to block them potentially moving. And it was led by the president of Baylor at the time, Kenneth Starr. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> the old who did the inquiry into Bill Clinton. I mean, this is the thing. It's in Texas, the people that are running these, they're they're powerful people. These are socially, politically powerful places, aren't they? They're not just football teams. Oh my gosh. And I remember, you know, when there was like a governor of Texas, including the current one, who was a former Longhorn, my school. Yeah. That was a big deal to fans. Oh, well, we got our guy in the governor's mansion now. <laughs> Yeah. If there's any legal issues, he will, or political issues, he'll take care of us. (laughs) By the way, just to add one note to A&M, one time I went to a game down there, and they were giving me the tour of some friends, and we went to the graveyard of the Texas A&M mascots. Their mascot is a collie dog. Yes. There was a mascot graveyard. I imagine they're not the only school that had that, but that just made an incredible impression on me, (laughs) that this was this place of... You know, reverence and silence where our former mascots are buried. Because they have a dog as a mascot, I think. And it used to always be kidnapped by Texas Long. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot, you know, this is all this, the, the stuff that used to happen. And it was sort of a really big thing when it was always kidnapped. One mascot was celebrated once at the inaugural ball in Washington, D.C. with President George W. Bush. <laughs> An honored guest. It was on equal footing with the President of the United States. Isn't that incredible? I mean, that is just that's just next level. I've never heard any, in almost any sport, I've never heard the, the dog mascot being honored at the inaugural ball, but there you go. No, and I imagine no, nobody in Texas thought that was weird. Was, oh, <laughs> good to see Reveille there. That would have been like, that's, that's appropriate. That's an appropriate level. Uh, the amazing thing is Texas A and M. They had a, they used to build this huge bonfire, which I was reading about. That used to get up huge, and it collapsed. Ninety nine, nineteen ninety nine, my senior year. Actually, killed yeah. twelve students. They, these were these. They'd build it out of logs, and it was huge. It was like forty feet tall, sort of you know five thousand logs, and it collapsed. It's a horrifying event at the time. Not only just because obviously the sadness about the loss of life, but it was. You know, something that, again, went just so deep to Texas A&M's identity. This was part of their yeah. image. You know, this was a, this was one of these sacred traditions. And for something horrible to happen in the midst of that, it was just awful. Well, that had George Bush showed up, to the you know, and it was a, the president. 40,000 people came to the vigil. You know, that's a tragic event. But as you say, it reminds me just with Texas and all college football I don't think any sport has rituals quite to the same extent. Maybe it's because there's so many teams, so you kind of, and you've got a lot of students. Is it because you've just got students sitting around with a lot of time on their hands to think of rituals? What's Yeah, a lot of times and bad intentions, you know, or, you know, you mentioned the kidnapping of the mascots, the branding of the mascots, you know, that's another one with the Texas um, Longhorn. But yeah, I think so. And I think also it's like, it's funny about, college, isn't it? How much gets passed along as almost oral tradition yeah. from class to class. You know, there was never a moment uh, when I was in college that somebody gave you a sheet of paper and say, here's the school song. Here's the thing you're supposed to chant at football games. You just started showing up and you figured it out. Yeah. And, you know, but halfway through your first year, you were, oh, well, I know all the songs now. I'm, I'm a full blown Texas fan. I think that just happened over the course of a century, basically. Yeah, yeah. It's just you're just going straight into it. The next one I wanted to bring up was Texas Tech. The Red Raiders. Where where would they fit into the the hierarchy of college football teams in Texas? There's a fascinating one. So not nearly as much success historically as Texas and Texas AM. So going down a tier just in terms of pure like 
conference championships and things like that. Yeah. Out in farther west, away from the bigger population centers of Texas, known for their horse and rider mascot, known also for the very peculiar ritual of throwing tortillas on the field <laughs> after their team scores a touchdown. If you came across this one. <laughs> Kind of an interesting food-based uh, treat. Is it a full cooked tortilla with like everything in it? Or? No, it's I think it's straight out of the package. Yeah, they, right. they, they, they fly like Frisbees. I mean, this is the yeah. thing. They, they go pretty well. So, <laughs> yeah, Texas Tech was always kind of a funny one. And the thing is, like, you just you would know people from your high school who went to most of these places. Right. So that was another part of this, right? It wasn't like, you know, Texas would be your high school was big. The state's big. There's lots of schools. So you would almost know somebody at every one of these places. Yeah, yeah. And as soon as they'd go there, oh, I knew that was a Texas Tech person. I knew that was a UT person. <laughs> uh, there's also the Baylor Bears, which they're a step down, aren't they? They're sort of Texas Tech or... Historically, sure, that level. And their view of them is sort of similar. I mean, they have two black American bears as, um, on campus because <laughs> yeah. of their mascot. And they've been told, though, since... Uh, 2010, they're no longer allowed to bring them to football games. Someone's <laughs> finally got, I love how it took till 2010 for someone to go, I don't know if bringing two yeah. fully grown black bears into a stadium full of students is the best idea. The animal rights movement arrived late for college football, put it, put it that way. I bet they were hated, absolutely yeah. hated. So Baylor's a Baptist uh, university. So there's, first of all, there's a religious component to it that's slightly different from uh, one of my best friends in current podcast partner whose dad was a Baptist minister went to Baylor. So we talk about every year, always you're fated to go to certain schools. He was a Baylor student, uh, which is about an hour and a half up the road from where I was. Yeah. Um, the other funny thing about Baylor was their chant was, or their sort of saying was Sikkim bears. I always thought it was really funny. Yeah. And you made the, the hand gesture. The bear claw kind of gesture. Yeah. yeah. And Texas Tech was a gun, you know, for the Red Raiders and Texas was Longhorn and Aggies were the thumbs up. Everybody else, you have these, it's almost like a secret society where you have your own, you know, sort of hand gesture to get in. My, one of my favorites is, you know, obviously in terms of names just for a football team is obviously Texas Christian University, TCU. They are they're the horned frogs. <laughs> the horned frogs. It doesn't exactly exist <laughs> in life. You know, there's there are horny they're toads, mythical I animals. Think we would say, and <laughs> not under that name anyway. Oh yeah, the TCU, that the, the frogs, and that's where I grew up in Fort Worth. Yeah. So they're probably the games I went to most as a kid, you know. And again, slightly lower in the standings. Yeah. Uh smaller school, private school. Uh, rather than a big public school, but but very, yeah, purple is their color too. So they're purple horned frogs. Did you have a soft spot for them growing up in there or once you went to the Longhorns, you were a bit, yeah. they were arrived? Before my re-education, uh, yes, I did probably have a soft spot for them growing up and I immediately <laughs> forgot about all that. You know, you've got others like University of Houston, University of Texas at San Antonio, some of these other ones. I've left Longhorns to last, but one that's kind of interesting is the SMU Mustangs, the Southern Methodist University. They're the only team that ever had the death penalty in college. We were talking about amateurism. Death, I love its death penalty because it's it's sort of, you know, it's it's sort of spoken about like very much like it was, and that was when they were caught back making payments basically to players 
I think it's a 30 for 30. There's a good doco on this. The Pony Express. The Pony. Everyone talks about sort of they, you know, they paid players, but it was more they repeatedly did it and weren't that subtle about it. Like they're not the first college football program to spend money. They just seem to be the only one that didn't stop when they were told to stop. It's so true. Is that an accurate recall of that? Extremely accurate. And I just remember as a kid growing up, because this was happening when I was pretty young, there were all these wonderful TV news segments where the sportscaster would hold up an envelope and be asking the SMU powers that be, did you send this envelope? Because it would have been filled with a payment or money or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it, was an, it was just an unbelievable sort of performance of scandal as well as being an actual scandal. And of course, now we look at it and say, of course they were paying the players. The players deserve, they deserve to be paid in yeah. tiny amounts of money compared to what somebody would make today. Yes, that that was that was absolutely amazing. And so the death penalty meant their football team got shut down. They weren't allowed to have a football team. They were not. I imagine for the student body and for the communities, from all we've been talking about, that's a massive blow. That's just not like you can't watch them football. That's a blow to the heart and the culture. It is of a whole area. It was, and it, it's really sad. And just again, it goes to identity, right? You know, my identity is wrapped up in football in some way, and now we can't play football. And also, like, I went to college at UT because I wanted to watch the football team. Let's let's be honest here. You know, the, <laughs> you weren't driven by some deep academic. Yeah, the 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 academics seemed quite good, and the journalism, the the school newspapers seemed pretty solid. But if we're being honest, like a huge part of my decision making was I want to watch football, and the idea that we wouldn't have been playing what I was there would have been just awful and crushing. <laughs> Let's talk about the Texas Longhorns. Uh, even over here in Australia, I know quite a few guys who barrack for the Texas Longhorns. You know, out of all the college sides, they've got this reach, this brand. They've won four national championships. They're moving to the SEC, which is the big powerful conference with Alabama and all those other major teams in it. They seem to be a bit at the moment in this perpetual, it's going to turn around as a team, and it doesn't seem to quite get there all the time at the moment. Is that how it feels? It's how it's always felt. It was just, you know, the glory is somewhere in the past and in the future. Yeah. But all the necessary elements for winning are there. Big school, a lot of money, you know, the boosters, which is what you call the rich guys who are giving money to the football program, Mm. all very, you know, have big wallets ready to whip them out and everything. So yes, Texas is one of those schools that is notionally good. They just, a couple of days ago, right, made the college football playoff for the first time ever since it has only been in existence for about a decade. So that was a big deal. Yeah. And that was one of these dawns of Texas football, hopefully not a false dawn. (laughs) uh, There's a bit of controversy with Florida State not making it, wasn't there? There's always... Oh, my God. I I love the college. um, For people that don't know, it's kind of voted on in a ranking system, which is... It's not like any other sport, really, is it? It's not. And it's it's a committee. It's a bit of the vibe of who makes it as well. (laughs) A lot of vibes. And a committee of elders, you know, who are looking at all these uh, schools and picking which are the top four and the Florida State thing. So they... People don't know they had a perfect season, thirteen and zero. Yeah, but they didn't make the fourteen playoff, and two teams that had a loss made it ahead of them. Yeah, and this has now become such an incredible ruckus that Donald Trump has inevitably weighed in, and he has blamed Ron DeSantis 
the governor of Florida for not advocating for his home state school enough. Yeah. You're going to follow that bouncing ball. <laughs> I, do, I do love how it just instantly goes to the top straight away. Like you've got oh, to have yeah. an opinion of it. So the Longhorns, they're moving to the SEC, which is this the whole thing of huge changes in teams moving is a seismic thing for TV rights and all this sort of stuff. And you don't want to be in a conference that's you're playing the lower teams, do you? Like it's, it's always shifting and it's always money, right? And it's a huge reversal of history. You know, we mentioned Texas A&M, they stopped playing. And the reason is because Texas A&M preceded Texas to the SEC by about 10 years. Mm. So all of a sudden this rivalry that Texas have been playing for a hundred, literally a hundred years just yeah. ended one day. Now they're going to be back in the same conference, but you've seen this all over college football. You know, like Oregon and Oregon State are going to be in separate conferences. Now that those teams seem fairly related to me, you know, <laughs> but they will now be playing in conferences that exist. Across, they're at least aligned with teams across the country from each other. Yeah. So it's just a very, very funny system. And it, and then it becomes harder to, of course, like recruit people if you're in a, low, a softer conference, and you know has a huge impact. I just wanted to move on to the NFL now. Not only is college huge, but you know, the first NFL team was nine fifty two. The Dallas Texans, who lasted one year, went one and eleven. <laughs> Still beat the Chicago Bears, so even back then, <laughs> but then moved on. The big moment in Texas was in sort of nineteen fifty nine, nineteen sixty. You have the American Football League start up, so you get teams out of there. The Dallas Texans arrive, uh, the Houston Oilers arrive, and you also have the Dallas Cowboys sort of coming into existence around this time. So this is a huge moment where what had always been very secondary to college football, you suddenly have NFL professional football being played in Texas. It's very interesting and a very and a huge difference for, you know, when I talked to people that were my grandparents' generation, pro football was new. Yeah. You know, college football was, you know, literally from the late 1800s, early 1900s. Yeah. But this idea that you'd have professional teams in Texas now, oh my gosh, they were the new kids on the block, so to speak. And they had trouble drawing, you know, the Texans in their first thing, they were pulling like 18,000 where, you know, and they dropped down after that because they never won. And you had colleges, you know, I mean, they're pulling like eighty to 100,000. So people were literally writing up, I've read some old opinion pieces of, Will professional football in, in America last? She's so hysterical now. <laughs> when the Super Bowl gets 100 million viewers, right? <laughs> but, it, but you know, you understand from what we were talking about earlier, it doesn't, at least in those early days, it didn't have the kind of elements of identity that high school and college had. You didn't go to Dallas Cowboys University yeah. the way you'd gone to Texas A&M or the way you'd gone to your high school. Yes. And so it was different. And I still think it, the fandom... Well, it's crazy. I still think it feels different than the others do because you don't have a stake in it in quite the same way, no matter how gonzo a fan you are that you do in your college team. You're living for those years on college as you did with your friends going every week. You're marinating in that culture daily. I mean, we get this here too with like, there's something about schooling whether it's a university or, or even high school, where you know, I'll, I'll still in Melbourne have people really interested in where I went to high school. You know, the people right. first, and I'll be like, really, like you know, it was <laughs> it was good twenty five years ago. I went there for four years. It's 
I don't know if it's quite the, you know, so you do get that thing that I don't think you get with NFL. Of course, the Texans, the Dallas Texans, it was sort of decided with the Cowboys were doing a little bit better. They were sharing the Cotton Bowl for a while as their home. Decided Dallas couldn't really handle two professional teams. So the Dallas Texans went off to Kansas City with Lamar Hunt, became the Kansas City Chiefs, which are suddenly now with Taylor Swift are the most famous football brand. Which is hilarious to me because I've followed NFL since sort of late 80s, 90s. And I remember when Joe Montana went there and they were always, the Chiefs were always, they were not a glamorous team. No, the opposite. Absolute opposite. The idea that a Taylor Swift-like figure would be in the press box watching her, you know, boyfriend play football. Ridiculous. Even Patrick Mahomes, you know, even the, you know, a superstar of the game and a sort of a cool figure, even him being there is... Oh, mind-blowing. <laughs> it's mind-blowing. It's just, I don't think, you've, you've got to sort of have followed it for a long time. So that sort of leaves us with, we had the Houston Oilers. My memories of the Houston Oilers was really Warren Moon back in the day. Sure. They were always a bit of a secondary team to the Cowboys, and they've obviously moved now and ended up in Tennessee, and, and now the Tennessee Titans. You know, were they big enough that when they left, it left a bit of a hole in Texas or hadn't built the roots? Yeah, no, definitely left a hole. And they'd, they'd never won a Super Bowl hmm. or even been to a Super Bowl. So there was a differential in success that probably endears you to a city. But, you know, look, those powder blue uniforms that Warren Moon used to play in. Yeah. The idea that you had, I mean, how on the nose is this an oil derrick? Yeah. on your helmet for a Texas football team. It looked great, though. It did you look great. Oh, it was great. amazing. But <laughs> it was just, yeah, it's a, it was terrible. And I remember one of the newspaper writers there actually covered them in Tennessee for a year after they left town. Yeah. Because he thought people would still want to know what was happening to their team, even though they weren't there anymore. Now, yeah, you're right. If, if they'd have stayed, there'd be a push to change the name, replace it with solar panel or a... <laughs> or a wind green, turbine. Green energy. Yeah. <laughs> be some, the Houston Oilers support green energy. <laughs> Interesting, they were in different conferences, the Cowboys, and I think Houston were as well too. So they weren't playing each. The rivalries between the Texas professional teams, it's not quite there in the same way, is it, as some of the colleges? No, and it's there to be exploited because Dallas and Houston have a massive rivalry mm. as being the two biggest cities in the state or the two let's, well, two, two of the biggest cities in the state. So, yeah, but it was the games were very few and far between. It was kind of disappointing. And I, as a you know, psychotic Cowboys fan, really hated the Oilers. Yeah, just viscerally. Even though I, you know, I saw them play only a handful of times in my lifetime. Right, but you still hated them to a cellular level for whatever reason. I mean, I was just I felt that was somehow ingrained in you know the contract <laughs> I'd signed when I became a Cowboys fan. So the Cowboys established in the nineteen sixties. They quickly they started off. It was going to be called the Dallas Rangers, but that didn't stick, and they became the Dallas Cowboys. They were 0-11 in their first season, but despite this, no one really minded that much. It was just, I think they just loved having them. They quickly go on to win Super Bowls and have this glamour attached to them as America's team, which I think was originally in one of their promotional videos, but then sort of took off everywhere. It was an NFL promotional video. Yeah. Where you had this, you know, deep voice narrator, America's team, because (laughs) they'd been to a bunch of Super Bowls in the 70s. They'd won a few of them. They'd also lost some. So Mm. they had that, you know, kind of endearing next year's team quality to them. 
And the other thing that was so funny, Titus, that just literally happened because I was actually at the game the other day is, you know, the NFL said we need a second team to play on Thanksgiving Day when you have the ultimate captive audience in the United States. Everyone's with their family. Yeah. Everyone's bored of their family or outwardly angry at their family because they've had some horrible political discussion or something. And so they just turn on the television. And the Cowboys raised their hands and said, we will be that team. And they have been that team every single year for, what, 50-plus years now. Yeah. And it just gave, you know, you had 20-plus teams in the NFL, now more than 30 teams in the NFL. It just gave them this just audience every single year who watched them on a national holiday. And I think over time, that plus their success made them into America's. America's team. Yeah, they also had um, the cheerleaders, which I remember, I think the first time I've even heard of the Cowboys was some movie referencing the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. So they have yes. that sort of, they've got that glamour attached to them. I'm a 49ers fan, so I grew up very much watching Aikman and uh, Emmett Smith destroy us. And um, there's had several periods of huge success, haven't they, where it's, you know, they can look at some dynasties and some and great moments. They they are a storied side as well as sort of having the glamour. Absolutely, and that and that is part of it. You know, you'd have it wouldn't work if there wasn't a case full of Super Bowl trophies. Yeah, to make them that, and you know, they also just I don't know if it's the uniforms, if it's the kind of glamour that Dallas, the city, had in the eighties when it had the TV show and everybody was rich with oil money, and but there was just this sense. The Dallas was the Cowboys are a very cool team mm. and, and a very media friendly team. You know, if you just watch sports television here, the two biggest topics are anything LeBron says and anything the Dallas Cowboys do. Yeah. And that is regardless of what the records are, it does not matter because that's what brings national ratings in, is to talk about the Cowboys and talk about LeBron James. And I think what we've been talking about is it's it's become the pinnacle of Texas football as well on top of that. So you've got this state that is oil money, highly populated, it's a big state and hugely behind football at every level. And then so there you've got this huge team at the top of it sort of. It's perfectly aligned basically. With a stadium as big as the MCG, you know, yeah. with, you know, a retractable roof. One of the biggest scoreboards I've ever seen. Oh my gosh. I, when I take my son, first of all, just to tell you how sick I am, I live in Los Angeles, mm. a three and a half hour flight away, but I am a Dallas Cowboys season ticket holder. <laughs> that makes any sense to you at all. But I took my son for Thanksgiving and you know, like we're trying to be good parents, right? Make sure he's not on his iPad all day or watch whatever. He gets more screen time when we're at AT&T Stadium than he ever does in life because he's sitting there looking at a screen that is literally 40 or 60 yards, I can't remember how long it is, that's right in front of him. We're up there in the upper deck. Yeah. So he's just watching television. And then a couple times a game, I just turned to him and I was like, I don't want to tell you what to do, but just remember to watch the actual players on the field <laughs> for at least a few minutes today. <laughs> But that's kids, right? You take them to any sporting event and they're telling you about, look what the mascot's doing, look what... Yeah, which is kind of a nice reminder. I like your story of the first time you went to the old... You were eight. You went to the old Texas Stadium. I think your first Dallas Cowboys game. Mm -hmm. Your mum made you wear two layers of thermal underwear and it wasn't that cold. (laughs) Yes. And And we had this chest. I mean, it felt like a just absolute march from the stadium to the parking lot. Yeah. And after the game, I just laid on the floor of my family's van, just 
sweating and, and just near, you know, I was blacking out. Because of the thermal underwear and trapped the heat. Thermal underwear. I would just <laughs> if it was like the players, you know, had worn that when they were playing football. It says in your column, one of your uncles yelled out, My God, the kid's gonna die of heat stroke. <laughs> this is your first ever NFL experience. It was so true. And I remember them just stripping all the clothes off me and me just lying there in my underwear, coming back to normal body temperature. It was fabulous. Uh, we then get the Houston Texans, who basically are the NFL deciding we can't let the market like Houston. I think it's the fourth biggest city in the US. You can't let that not have a team. So they, they put in the Houston Texans. Who... Subtle, don't you think? The Texans? Yeah, the Texans. Like, Oh, is that where it is? <laughs> they haven't quite taken any great heights yet. I think they've got a great young quarterback at the moment, but that's... Uh... Were they quickly embraced in Houston? They were just thrilled to have a team. I think pretty quickly, but it's just, it's hard, right? You just sever 30, 40 years of memories like that. And, yeah. and it's probably not the same, and it's probably not going to be the same for a really long time. And for some people, it will never be the same. But yes, definitely, definitely bought in on the text. To finish off, I just wanted to bring, we did a three-part series on the USFL on our podcast, which was one of our favorite ones we've done this year. I mean, if anyone hasn't, followed that story the usfl is a it's not a movie it's a, it's a series that needs to be made because it is just the characters involved oldenburg and la and trump in new york and but the one i loved most of all and want to see if you have any memories of this was the san antonio gunslingers who were the the briefly run usfl franchise do you have any memory of I mean, you've probably read about them a bit since, but do you have any memory of the USFL growing up? Definitely the mascot name because it was just, again, talk about on the nose. <laughs> yeah. how, can we, how can we advertise Texans to the world? Oh, Oilers is already taken. I know, let's do gunslingers. Yeah. That, that was most of it. But yeah, it felt very much like a pirate operation. <laughs> had been sort of grafted onto the state, but fun, as you say, while it lasted. It, it was amazing. One of my favorite, and I just want to leave you with this one because I thought you'd enjoy this. I mean, the whole story of it, they were at Alamo Stadium, been built in 1939. It was falling down. They used to put plastic chairs at the end of the end zone to get people to be able to sit, <laughs> which I always liked. The guy who ran it was Clinton Mangas, who was a huge oil and property guy. And, and I think he ended up getting his raided by the FBI in the end. So he had a very interesting thing. He hired people who had never knew anything about football before. Oh, my gosh. And they thought when they were setting up the team, one of them asked around, where do we buy like the uniforms for the away team when they visit? So we, they thought they had to give the away team. Oh, that's fantastic. So they were that level of thing. Now, one of my favorite things is I just thought this is such a – it's such a great one of bringing up – sort of the Texas feel of, you know, the center of the communities. The Gunslingers held an automobile raffle ticket giveaway for halftime. So you bought it in the first half, you bought a raffle ticket. And have you heard this story? No. So Tom Allison, the stadium's public address announcer, leans into the microphone and says, tonight's winner of the 1984 Dodge Charger is, oh my God, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is amazing. <laughs> and booze rained down. 
But it that turned out incredible. He, he legitimately bought the raffle ticket and made have said, Yeah, you've won the car. It's like that is so funny. It's like when Ken Brockman wins the lottery on The Simpsons in real time. It lit wow. so I'm I'm sure the Simpsons must have taken but I read that and just thought that might be the greatest Texas story I've ever heard. Perfectly describes the level of <laughs> how not quite on the level the USFL was throughout its entire existence. <laughs> it's just one of the great stories. Just I would have I don't think there's any footage of that. So I would have loved to have heard that actually in the actual audio of that. Oh my god. Unbelievable. <laughs> now just before we go, I just wanted to finish off by saying uh, not so fast, the oral history of ESPN's college game day. College game day being the big pre show to college games. Three hours I think it goes for now. And I remember watching it back in the nineties and it's um you did an oral history of that. How long did it take you to do that? Because the amount of work and interviews and then cutting it down, I've written four books. So I look at this stuff and, you know, you sort of now just see the work. Yeah, right. <laughs> just, That's what pops out. Yeah, you know, like I'm reading it as an interesting thing, but I'm also the, like one track of my brain's going, this is, ex- I'm exhausted reading this. How long did it take you to pull that together? Because you've interviewed anyone who's anyone on that. Literally last year's college football national championship games. This is January 2023. Yeah. The night before, two nights before, I was interviewing one of the announcers at the hotel because it was out here in Los Angeles. And I interviewed him and I had realized it was the 30th anniversary of the show game day going on the road. So I walked from him over to the PR people and said, I want to write an oral history of college game day. So that was 11 months ago. Right, And I started on it probably a month and a half after this. And from you absolutely know this, Titus, from writing books. It's like assembling a 5,000-piece puzzle. Yeah. Except you actually have 20,000 pieces and you only need 5,000. Yeah. You know, it's not like all the pieces even need to be in the puzzle. You're going to take most of them and throw them away. Most of it, yeah. So, you know, you're just shuffling and shuffling and shuffling. And then you realize, oh, I don't have this piece at all. I need to call somebody up and get this. And, and there's no picture on the box either. So you- There's no picture. <laughs> you have no idea. And I always forget, I've done a few of those oral histories for, for The Ringer. Yeah. One for Grantland back in the day. And I always forget what an undertaking it is. Fun, incredibly fun, no complaints. But it just yeah. I always forget that, oh, wow, this is just going to be a lot of earth moving to get this done. I think some people look at an oral history and go, Oh, how easy is this? You just do interviews and like you don't have to come up with the what they're gonna say in a way. So, you know, you you just you're just cutting and pasting from interviews. They think well, that. It's much harder. And then you go, Yeah, but you don't understand like the leg and grunt work and then even making it flow and make sense. Yes. And have a narrative. like it's because st- when you're reading an oral history, it's still gonna have a narrative, right? It can't be a series of just <laughs> like, you know unrelated quotes it's got to tell a story and you've got to, so you've actually got to use someone else's words to tell the story and what you've done well is there's not many places where you've had to in, like actually give much context or background you've let that happen but that's where i go that's the work that would be exhausting well thank you for saying that I, it's so true because it has to read like a story you know it cannot read like a senate hearing transcript right? Like it has to, it must have a flow to it. Just like if you or I were sitting down and writing something from scratch. Yeah. And that's, what's so funny about it. And sometimes I see, I think Grantland is probably partly responsible for this, but oral history just become very, very big on the internet. And sometimes I'll read it and it'll be like, 
giant paragraph, giant quote, giant quote, giant quote. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. You know, this you wouldn't structure a piece like that. Nah. You know, not every not every paragraph would be a full mouthful of food. There would be you'd have, you know, it would have some flow, it would have a differentiation. And that's what's just so hard to achieve with one of those. I think whether it's oral histories or, or normal writing, getting a good structure is like I always say that to people who ever say oh, I want to write a book. I go just get the structure right and just keep working on that as well as what you're writing. Totally. And they go really it seems a bit boring. And then you go well when you read someone's thing they can't formulate it. Like all good storytellers have amazing structure to it. I think totally right. It goes back to your to your thing with the puzzle, not having the picture of the puzzle. If you don't have that when you start, or you know the plans to a house, whatever metaphor we want to come up with. Yeah, you're really, you know, putting a lot of belief that you're just going to figure that out in real time. Sometimes you do. Yeah. But if it's a big project, book length project, giant article, my gosh, it has to it has to start with some kind of plan. I know. I think it's the difference between a stand up doing someone doing one joke and, and, and doing a full hour. That's a great another great metaphor. Yes, you know, like every, everyone in the world could probably get up and tell one funny story if absolutely had to, you know, <laughs> that they've heard in their life, at least I was like, but to get up and do a whole hour of original material is a bit different. Yeah. Like, and, and that's yeah. where the grub works. So no, I really enjoyed reading it. It was like, it's just such a college game day is just such a phenomenon. And like all great phenomenons really started off with no expectation it was going to be a phenomenon. No. Very organic. That's what comes through. It's very organic that the growth of it comes through your article. And when we're talking about Texas football, essentially think about what they're trying to do. They're trying to take a regional sport, college football, and make a national television show out of it. Yeah. That somehow honors every region of the United States at the same time, you know, in the same program. Because if you don't, well, those people will be mad. Why were we left out of the television show? Yeah. And it's an it's a sort of a neat trick that they were able to pull that off thirty now plus years ago. Well, Brian, thanks for doing this, and also just thank you for holding our hand and gently stepping us through the uh, the, the world of Texas football. I feel like we've all come away with a better understanding of it. <laughs> well, my pleasure. I hope, hope I didn't scare anyone too much, but you know, it's, it is its own. Strange, unique, and yet somehow wonderful thing. Uh, well, good luck to the uh, University of Texas. Good luck in the, to the Longhorns and, and to your Cowboys. And uh, we might talk again one day. It'd be great. That would be great. Thank you so much, Titus. And ladies and gentlemen, now we have a short outtake from our bonus episode we do every week from the Bazaar Plus membership program. I went and saw Sex Pistols at Festival Hall. Oh, and I went there in a Volvo that had seat warmers. And I remember thinking at the time, this is worlds colliding. <laughs> no, it was, so the Volvo was, uh, it was like they'd been sponsoring a radio show. And I said, do you want to drive a Volvo? I go, yeah. But I was just laughing at the idea of going to the Sex Pistols concert, yeah, yeah. driving a Volvo Very, with, with bum warmers. <laughs> in supreme safety and comfort. <laughs> <laughs> That's a short clip from our bonus episode each week for members who join our Bazaar Plus program. Simply go to the link in the show notes or go to bazaarplus.com.